The Online Marketing Show. Every day with Joseph Bushnell. Helping you to grow your online business by driving more traffic, improving conversion rates, increasing customer value, and getting things done fast. Listen, take action, make money. Hi, welcome to the Online Marketing Show. I'm your host, Joey Bushnell. Today's special guest is Robert Stover. Robert is a top business growth consultant, copywriter, and the author of the book, Strategy Matters. Go to robertstover.com to find out more. Robert, thank you so much for being on the show with me today. Thanks for inviting me, Joey. Robert, how did you get involved in this industry of business growth and copywriting? Well, it started out, I was actually, I did NLP sales training um, going back in 89. I had a chance to work with Richard Bandler, um, learn from him, and I was teaching salespeople about um, NLP stuff. And after that, I, I have what I call my 29-year-old midlife crisis, and I can remember what happened. I'm writing on a on a whiteboard and teaching salespeople these manipulative techniques, and I thought, what am I doing? How did I get here? Did I want to be here? This is what I went to school to do. Da da da. And the questions kind of came in, and um, I actually, you know, it's a miniature crash and burn there. Mm-hmm. And so I took six months off. I just stopped doing it, and uh, went. And somebody gave me some stuff. Uh, from Jay Abraham, of all people, some transcripts that he had from the 90s or back in 89. And just fascinated me was the marketing. And so I went after it hard. I used to walk these country roads and down tank, train tracks listening to um, tapes on marketing and studying marketing and just got fanatic about marketing. I went back to one of my former sales training clients and said, hey, why don't you have me come back in? Um, and consult with you, but not on sales, but on this more powerful thing called marketing. And you've got these great opportunities. And that's how it launched, is I went back and started doing marketing for him and marketing for other people and, um, you know, looking for the leverage and doing some of these things. For that particular client, um, one of the first things we did out of the box, uh, the previous year, they were in a seminar industry in the real estate. The previous year, they'd mailed out this beautiful four-color brochure, professionally designed, just gorgeous thing, cost $20,000 to print. And they mailed it out. They got one sign-up. Oh, no. <laughs> so their annual event came back around. Mm-hmm. And, you know, armed with my newfound knowledge, I'm like, uh, hey, why don't we actually do direct response copy? Okay. And they're like, no, 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 we're never sending out a – let's just send out these flyers. And they were doing some black-and-white print flyers that they're mailing out. And I'm going, that's insanity. Let's actually sell this thing. He's going, no, that's, the, that's what the telemarketing team is for. They'll call up, they'll sell it, we'll send out flyers. So, um, you know, it's young and stupid. So I went and wrote a long copy sales letter for this thing. I went and interviewed the people that did it. Um, I interviewed the owner's sons. I interviewed realtors that were there. And it was kind of this whole vibe, this huge event, excitement. I packed all of that into the headline. I featured that. And I, I wrote this letter, and I went and showed it to his vice president at the time. And the vice president said, this is absolutely what you told not to do. This is awful, and we're not going to do it. Um, he goes, I will not show this to the, to the gentleman, the owner. So I end random and uh, showed it. And the, the, the boss reads it and looks at it, and he thinks a minute. And he goes, I send it. So instead of mailing his entire 80,000 list, uh, this is back prior to email, uh, they uh, sent it to 
6,000 people. I stuck it in an envelope with no return address, unlike, you know, so it wasn't branded like typical stuff. No return address. And on the, the, um, in the letter, because I didn't know when this was going to hit in mail and whatnot, I just put a Friday at 5 p.m. And I figured, well, if it gets to them on a Saturday, they'll think it's the next Friday. And if it gets them to them on a Thursday, they'll think they have to sign up by that Friday. Because I have no idea when this is going to happen. So we send this out. Three days later, the phone starts ringing and ringing and ringing and ringing. And in a week, we sold, uh, how many was it? It was like 900 of these seats at 395 bucks. Nice. Out of 6,000. Yeah. Wow. Brilliant. It was massive. And, and he stoked. The secretary wants to quit because all of these calls were coming in. They, they weren't, they weren't going to the sales team because it end ran the sales team as well. Mm-hmm. So the sales team's ticked off because they've lost all their commissions. <laughs> the uh, secretary's ticked off because she's going and when she comes in in the morning, there's 200 messages on the answering machine with credit card numbers. They were leaving their credit card numbers on the answering machine. And she's having to take all this information down, and as soon as she gets it clear to fill up again. It was just craziness. And the owner's stoked, and I discovered both the power of marketing and the power of copywriting. Um, and that, that was pretty much the launch, and that's, that got me a reputation among a lot of speakers and trainers, and, and um, that's sort of where I um, launched out of into the, into the marketing world. Cool. So you've got a course, Robert, named the Copywriting Master Formula. But it's slightly different to a lot of the other copy courses that are out there because you've got a bit of a different take on copywriting. So can we talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, the, real quick, and, and I'm going to say something. Um, a lot of your listeners, they want to hear stuff about copy, and they're, they're very familiar with hearing copywriting, especially if they're in the online world or blogging world. Um, so we're going to give them a little different take on that. Um, but also what I want to hammer home a little bit later is that there's something actually more important than copy. Um, that they should probably be focusing on before the copy. So we'll kind of hit, we'll touch both bases there. So my take on copywriting, um, if, if you're a typical copywriter and you're just starting out or you're buying a course, usually you end up with a template, which I call the Betty Crocker approach to copy, which is, okay, you do a subhead or a prehead and or an eyebrow, if you're insider language, you do a headline, you do a subhead, you do a salutation, you do an intro paragraph. Then you go into um, either the pain or the benefits, depending on the structure you're taking. Um, then you go into a bullet section. Then you go into an offer section. Then maybe you come back with more bullets. Then you handle objections. Um, then you reach a close. Then you bring in a time element, um, a restriction or scarcity. Then you bring in a bonus. Then you do another close and a summary call to action. Then you do a PS, a PPS, and maybe a PPPS. There's your Betty Crocker copy. The other approach is you start to realize that doesn't work in all situations, and every situation is unique, like a thumbprint. Every situation you sell in is a thumbprint. There's something unique about that. So when the Betty Crocker doesn't work, after you start studying a copy a while, you end up with a big, giant bucket of copy technique. Um, I can do this, and you've got things like underlining and bolding and highlighting and, and scrawling stuff on the side. You end up with this sales tactic and this sales tactic, and um, maybe you should, maybe you shouldn't sales tactics. And so you end up with all this huge assortment. In fact, one of the books out there 
has, I think it's 2,200 or 2,300 um, copywriting techniques in it. Mm-hmm. Well, when you sit to write copy, let's be serious. Can you access all those techniques as you're, as you're cranking copy out? And is that a structure? And I go, in, like, no. So we know movies have a structure. Yeah. Hollywood has a movie structure. There is a structure. And so I, I started looking at, you know, what's the underlying structure of, of copy? And I looked at some traditional ways to structure stuff. And there's attention, interest, desire, action. Well, yeah, you've got to get their attention. But interest, what does that mean? What's the difference between interest and desire? And isn't what gets people attention that which they're already interested in? And where are handling objections in that? Where is this thing called what Aristotle called ethos and authority, like you might see at a Shadowney's work on influence? And I realized these formulas weren't doing it. They had gaping holes in them. So that's still not something that you can base your, your copy off of. So then it was just kind of like an aha where I flipped it around backwards, and we'll hear that again a little later on flipping things around starting at the end. Um, but I flipped it and said, what if I stop looking at what I'm trying to do to somebody, which is influence and persuade, and here's all my techniques to do that. And instead, I looked at a sales decision as a subset of a um, – or a, a buying decision as a subset of decision-making. Well, there are models out there on how humans come to make decisions. And so I started studying it from a how do people, when no one's there to persuade them, how do they sell themselves? And from that, I came up with a structure, and all of a sudden, this huge bucket of different techniques I had fell into place. Like, oh, I get it. Here's why I'm doing that. It's because it it does this function in the decision-making process whether it's amplifying the pain or whether instantly they turn to look for solution or it's amplifying the um, the authority of the speaker and writer because they're looking for evidence or it's it's doing this. And so from that came the copywriting master formula. Okay. It, it, it was my attempt to take all of the hundreds of techniques and distill them into a repeatable thing that I can go into a situation and go, okay, do I have this major chunk of decision-making? Do I have this chunk? Do I have this chunk? And do I have this chunk? And then below each of those elements, you've got you've got dozens of things. Um, if, if your listeners want to go look, I've got a free video up. It's about 30 minutes long. I give the whole technique away, and it's at secretcopyformula.com. That's secretcopyformula.com. And then um, if they want to sign up and they have a chance to opt in, and I even go into more in-depth into the formula. So there's a lot of free stuff there if they want to go out and get that. Okay, cool. Is there anything about that that you could share with us now on the call itself, like what some of those major steps of the formula would be? Sure. If we start with decision-making, mm-hmm. you don't make decisions in a vacuum. You just don't go, hey, I think I'll go buy a Mercedes today. Mm-hmm. Um, something happened before that. Usually what happens and is common is a problem. So somebody starts to get a bit of a problem. Then that problem grows. Like, you know, well, as minding my own business, all of a sudden my car needed $300 worth of uh, work done to it. Then the guy at work, um, the other consultant, pulled up in a new Mercedes. So now my car, I'm spending money because it needs repairs. And now another guy looks better than me. And then I'm driving through a scary part of town, and my, my car starts making funny noises like it's going to break down. Now I'm getting a little more scared, right? So we... we so problems start, I use a pebble into a water as an illustration. Problems always start, and then they start to ring out and get bigger and bigger and bigger. So in the formula, 
we talk about, first of all, how do you even bring up a problem? And there's, there's, I think, 20 formulas on how to give somebody a problem. And then there's formulas on how do you take that problem and amplify it out and make it worse. So almost always then, people are going to go a couple different ways. If they're scientific-minded, they look for causes. Well, and, and this is like one of the big ahas in the formula. As I went, oh, my word, no one uses causes. No one searches. So, right, let me give you an example. So, okay, my, my car is breaking down or something. Some people go, well, what's wrong with the car? I'll just fix the car. And they kind of go at it that way. Um, or in business, if there's a problem, what you're taught in business school is, okay, here's a problem. What's the root cause of that problem? And you go, And that's how you are taught to go after solving it. And that's where a lot of people instinctively go is for the cause, what actually caused that problem. So if I'm overweight, well, what's the cause? A, a great example of this, and I, I talk about it in the video, is out, out here we had a product called cortisol for losing weight. And their whole premise went like this. You're fat and you're overweight. Oh, but it's not your fault. Scientists have discovered that there's this stress when we're under stress, our body secretes a hormone called cortisol. And cortisol causes us to store fat around our bellies. So you can take all the exercise you want, you can do all the diets you want, etc. But as long as the stress hormones in you, you're going to be putting packing fat on around your belly. But with Cortislim, we can take that pill. And suddenly it blocks the cortisol in your body from accumulating and you just lose weight naturally. So if there's an example of somebody using a cause to sell a product. Mm -hmm. And what I discovered was no one's ever written on that before. Mm-hmm. So you go to some of the greats. I mean, these guys are great, like, say, Gary Halbert and things like that. They never talk about cause and finding the cause or using a new cause in copy. Yet if you study their copy, Eugene Schwartz, Gary Halbert, John Carlton, um, I, Clayton Makepeace, all of these great guys all go to causes. Mm-hmm. I went, oh, my word, it's right there in their copy. It's been in front of me for 20 years, and no one's ever identified that before. I, 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 another example in, from medicine of the cause is uh, stomach ulcers. Up until 20 years ago, everybody thought stomach ulcers were too much acid and we're in a bad diet, and it's gnawing away, you know, all that acid's eating away at our stomach, causing a lot of pain, creating ulcers. And that's how they treat it. So what's the treatment for that? Well, it's bread and bananas and rice and and no spices in your diet and milk, right? Really bland, nasty diet. That's the cure. That's what doctors have been doing for 100 years for ulcers. The doctors are smart. They're intelligent. They had the patient's best interest in mind. And based off what they believed the cause to be, their solution was a bland diet. Some researchers come along. I think actually one was out of the U.K., and um, they developed, they went like, hey, wait a minute. Around these ulcers, when we're looking at them under microscopes, there's all these bacteria. And they went, no, it couldn't be. So they started giving antibiotics for stomach ulcers. Bam, knocked them out. The true cause of stomach ulcers were bacteria. So no matter how well-meaning you were, trying to treat stomach ulcers, assuming the wrong cause, doesn't get you any any cure. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, as soon as they started treating the right cause, it started working. So this causation thing is prevalent 
in decision making and in business and in and everywhere else, but it's just never been introduced into coffee. Yet if you study great coffee, you'll find that great copywriters instinctively often go to a new cause being discovered. So the pattern would go like this. You've got a problem. You've tried this, it didn't work. You tried this, it didn't work. You tried this, it didn't work. Or if it's a story, I tried this, it didn't work. I tried Y and it didn't work. I tried Z and it didn't work. But then I stumbled across this new discovery, this new cause of the problem. And when I did that, the weight fell off or my business exploded or, you know, whatever it is you're after there. Muscles packed onto my body. So it's a very common, there's a real quick thing. That's not even the whole formula. But causes. Uh, the other people, when people get hit with problems, the other place they look is solution. And it's like, oh, crud. And they instantly go for a solution. Um, the other place people look, if they're catastrophizers, as I like to say, strategists, they go, oh, future causes. So if I've got this problem, what other problems is that going to cause? And it starts to ripple out. And what we know from the book Spin Selling, they studied 30,000 salespeople. The absolute best salespeople didn't handle objections and, and didn't try and uh, um, they weren't great closers. But what they were awesome at was taking a problem, dropping that pebble into the water and going, what other problems is that causing? Okay, so you're a little low on money. Is that causing stress with the family? Does that mean you can't take some of the vacations you wanted to? Does that mean you're not going to retire comfortably? What about sending your kids to school? Not going to be able to do that, are you? So you're going to, you might even lose your home. Um, going to get in trouble with the IRS. If you're over here, I don't know what the UK revenue system is. Um, but, but so the best salespeople go after causes. And, and for example, Dan Kennedy's formula is problem amplified the cause. So that, that's the simple of, of looking for the implications of a problem. Um, next we go to solution. Usually, we don't look at one solution. The human brain seems to look at three. Okay. And if you go to copy, a lot of times you'll see this, this three rhythm going. Or if you watch people in your life make decisions, you'll see they look at three options. And that's about all we can handle and juggle for some reason. So our brain, I mean, that's not the limit, but our brain seems to go, oh, do I do this, this, or this? Well, how do you choose among those? And here was the other big discovery was, oh, it's criteria. There's this thing called criteria in decision-making. If you go into copy, it's all over the place in people's copy, but it's never been talked about. A, a, a great example of this is um, at a client in the, in the, in the mortgage industry. Um, they're selling loans to, to homeowners. Well, in the U.S., when people would call them, there's all these ads of people doing all these bogus rates, phony rates, low rates. And so what consumers out here got in the habit of was, you know, ring, ring, hi, Joey. Uh, what's your interest rate? And if you said anything that wasn't as low as the phony rate in the paper, they hung up on you. But the truth is, everybody's situation is different, and everything's unique. My client created this software that did an analysis, and what it discovered is, um, and it's kind of a complex story on how it works out, but based on how long people are in the home, based on the payback rate, all this other stuff, um, very often the lowest interest rate in the short term carried a much higher cost. So if you got a lower rate and you're in a home for seven years, not the full 30, you might actually pay way more out of pocket with a lower interest than with a higher interest. It's, it's crazy, but it was for real. But getting anybody to hear that was impossible. They want to hear lowest rate, and they've been trained by all the other mortgage companies, rate shop, rate shop, rate shop. So 
the, the problem my client's having is people calling up, ring, ring, what's your rate? They give an honest rate, click, buy, mm-hmm. or buy, click. We solved that with criteria, and we did it with a question. And the simple question was, you know, ring, 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 what's your interest rate? And we trained the salespeople to go, I'm sorry, did you want the lowest interest rate or the lowest total cost loan? And they just shut up. And the consumer goes, uh, uh, what's the difference? Mm-hmm. And then the salespeople go, what, no one's ever shown you this before? <laughs> I, I can't, have you talked to other people and they haven't told you? Well, that's just wrong. Yeah. And then it gave them, well, here, let me show you, because they could send them spreadsheets and stuff. And it's like, let me show you the difference and show you how this works and show you why. And it, and it opened the people's mind to a conversation. It was extraordinarily successful. But what made that possible was that step called criteria. Yeah. So criteria, when we're looking at two or three things, which one's the best? And criteria might think things we value things like speed, time, cost, etc. Those are our criteria that we use to juggle. I had not seen that written much about in copy. So anyway, that's one of the steps in the formula. And, it's, and it comes from how we naturally make decisions. Then we have to go from all of those to one. How do we choose just the one? And we have to move to preference. And again, I found patterns out there in copy, um, fundamental patterns that, A, that's the way we make decisions naturally. We look at many options. We take criteria. We narrow to one. Well, I started seeing ads that followed that same fundamental thing, and I used the example of um, our luxury car ad. And it, it starts and it shows, uh, I don't know, six or seven luxury cars all coming at you down the road. And it goes, if you take away all of the luxury vehicles um, that don't have 500 square feet trunks and two or three vanish off the road, and if you take away those that don't have four-wheel disc brakes and two more vanish, and you don't take away the ones that don't have seated air conditioning and there's only one car left, your choice is obvious. Mm-hmm. It's the, you know, XJ7 Roadster. Um, so there is an example. I call it the uh, decision funnel. Of We do that to ourselves all the time. Advertisers do it. I've never seen it written about before. Mm-hmm. And and so it's a very common pattern you can do to create exclusivity. If any of your, your listeners out there are freelancers or um, sell individual product and stuff, they're always going to come up against competitors. And a very fast way to set yourself apart I say they're into copy or something. I don't know. And and you go, you know what? Out of all the copywriters that you could hire online, there's five that are really good. Yeah. So you admit the truth. There's five that are really good. Of those really great copywriters that live in the UK, there's two of them. Mm-hmm. Of those that specialize in online businesses, I'm the only one. So there's an example of using that decision funnel and coming right down to a point. So you went from the broad selection, you admit it and that. And um, anyway, those, those formulas and many more are free. From there, you get to obviously they have to take action. And from action, I throw benefits on the end because that's what people want. And that's what's kind of pulling the decision through. So I'm going to make this decision with all the good stuff I'm going to get. And then we move into judgment. And here's where almost everyone falls down, which is what we forget about is once we've made a decision in our personal lives, we come back and go, was that a good decision or was that a bad decision? And we go, oh, so all of our customers do the same thing. So we have to sell through that judgment phase. Now, all along this process, 
There's three other elements at play. And one is the constant search for evidence and proof. What most copywriters, at least when you look at a lot of online copy, they'll do all the copy and then they'll hit a segment near the close where they start handling objections all at once and a big clump. But that's not when people are objecting. Mm-hmm. People are actually objecting every time you make a statement or a claim through the, all the copy. And so what I say is that that search for um, it's called reputation and rhetoric, uh, objection handling, has to start very early. And you do it with almost every major you claim you make going through the copy, not wait until the end. The other thing is the search for proof and evidence, depending you know, if you're a sales guy, you're offering proof. If you're, a, if you're a consumer, you're looking for evidence. But again, the evidence starts not at the end or not with a, a cluster of testimonials at the end. It starts way back when you're stating a problem. Well, what's your proof that's actually a problem? Do you have supporting evidence that that's a problem? Um, what's your proof this is the real and true cause of something? What's your proof that these are actually the implications they're going to have? So if you study great speeches, um, get a book like on the 100 best speeches ever or something like that, and you study that, you'll find out that they're offering um, proof and evidence very early on. They're not waiting until the end. Yeah. So then the, the other final part, an extraordinarily powerful part, um, and I took the word from Aristotle, is ethos. And, and, I, and, it, and that is, what is the power and credibility of you as the writer or speaker have on the entire process? And like one example of ethos, um, some of your listeners would be familiar with the great copywriter uh, Gary Benjavinka, probably one of the, the greatest that ever lived. Well, out on his page... He, selling his stuff, he does something, it was kind of interesting, he sells, he does something that he does not actually teach in his $5,000 course. And it's an ethos technique. And what he does is before he tells you how good he is, because he's writing in the first person, he first tells you everything he's bad at. And he, and he goes into a segment of, you know what, if you're looking for a guy to fix a car, you know, I, I open the hood of a car and I stare at it like a cow staring at a fence. I'm worthless around the house, I can't fix anything, I can't do this. Um, I can't do athletics, and I can't do this. So he's just told you all the stuff he's terrible at, and then he goes, but when it comes to copy, I know 30 different things you can do to a headline to increase it by 300%. I know um, tweaks that you can do on your offer. I know things I eat and breathe it. I study it 16 hours a day. So but by, if he just come out and said that, you'd go, what a breaker. Yeah. What a boastful man. But by his first going, oh, man, I'm so cruddy at this stuff, I'm a klutz, I'm this, I'm that, and the other, and then coming out and going, I'm a chess master, you're going like, the believability, first of all. Mm-hmm. So it's, wow, that's very believable. I believe him when he says it because he told me all the stuff he was bad at. But secondly, it's like, oh, wow, he's a nice guy. And so, so I mean, the definition of ethos is um, the good man speaking, which is um, – there's two major components to it. One, do you know your stuff? Are you smart? Are you knowledgeable? Let's take loan guys again. Let's take a guy that's been in the business 20 years. Let's say he's using my client's software, and he can show you all this stuff about um, loans. Okay, that's a that's a guy that's extraordinarily knowledgeable. Now let's take your brother-in-law. You like your brother-in-law. He's a good guy, but he just got into the business six months ago. Mm-hmm. Is he that knowledgeable? Probably not yet. Yeah, so he's got your best interest in mind, but he's not that knowledgeable. Mm-hmm. 
On the other hand, you can take somebody that's extraordinarily smart and knowledgeable in an area, and they're a snake, and they're going to take advantage of you and things like that. So your guard's up against them. So you have to have two things, and, and it's not likability. It's are they knowledgeable, like a doctor smart knowledgeable, and do they have your best interest in mind? And it's when you pair those two, you get that lightning in a bottle called ethos where people just trust you. Brilliant. You have to pair those two together. They respect knowledge, and, that, and then they respect um, that you have their best interests in mind, but there's a lot of people that have our best interests in mind that are stupid. And there's a lot of people that are knowledgeable that are going to try and take our money from us and rob us. Mm-hmm. So those two have to come together, and Aristotle discovered that when they do, it creates a very powerful speaker, sales, writer, salesman. And so that's the other element that the formula goes a lot into. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that, Robert. If we want to dive in deeper, we can go to your website and watch your video and check out more of that, can't we? Absolutely. Awesome. Okay. You mentioned earlier that there was something that's even more important than copy. I'm wondering what could that possibly be, Robert? What could that possibly be? Well, as I, I, as I looked, and I've, I've got the advantage of being an older dude, um, so I, I'm looking over my, my history. I look over my work with clients, and I started noticing copy wasn't always the answer. It's a powerful one. It's not always the answer. And I noticed something very simple. I'll call strategy, a great strategy can overcome bad copy. Bad copy can't overcome um, a bad strategy. So so the world's greatest copywriter can't write his way out of a bad strategy. Not going to happen. On the other hand, if you have a brilliant strategy, the copy doesn't have to be that good. And I started noticing these situations where um, we changed some factors on the ground, not the copy, and it just created blockbuster results. And coming out of that, I wrote my book, Strategy Matters. Um, And and it became a passion, was helping people find the right strategy. So before the copy has to come strategy. Copy would be the servant of strategy. And there's a lot of people spending a lot of money on copy courses that we should be spending more time on the core fundamental strategy um, when they when they go in. And we can talk about let, let me give the, a, a quick rule of thumb on what strategy is. Um, we'll talk about the ITAP formula. I the, the formula is called ITAP TAP. So ITAP. Um, the I stands for identity. And identity is made up of what's my purpose, what's my mission, what am I actually trying to accomplish here? Quick true story, um, I'm in the real estate market here in the U.S., there were two individuals, both started a company, pretty much kind of doing the same thing, training and marketing and sales. One individual wanted to get wealthy. The other wanted to have the largest ad agency in the real estate industry. So they started off with fundamental different purposes. The one that wanted to have the largest ad agency he had staff, he had people, he had nicer buildings, because all of that goes into largest agency. Well, they also end up with massive overhead and about go bankrupt. Yeah. The guy that wants to get wealthy, he's looking for ways to cut costs, to sell better, to um, add new products in that people buy more of, going out with repeat products, being careful about offering too many services that are labor-intensive, things like that. So there's an example of two different goals create a radically different companies. 
So the first part of your strategy is, what the heck are you trying to do? What are you in business to do? Um, just get to the guy that wants to make a lot of profit versus the guy that wants to um, serve people the best. I, I just cruising through the Steve Jobs um, biography that I'm like the last guy on planet Earth to read. Um, but it was very clear. His whole thing was about making insanely great products, not making a lot of money. But the money followed the insanely great product. So his thing was, I want to, in his words, create a dent in the universe. I want to make insanely great products. Versus other guys that he didn't like that just wanted to make money. That was one of his beefs with modern business school. So, so those are two different objectives and goals going forward. So I, I'll give you another simple one. Um, one of my favorite questions is why. And we can instantly make your, your listeners here strategic consultants with this one three-letter word, why. Typically, people are taught to talk it about to looking for causes. For example, the Toyota, the Toyota um, Six Sigma, the five whys. Um, something's wrong. Why? Oh, well, because of this. Well, why? Oh, well, because of this and this. Well, why is that happening? Because of this. And what it does is reduces you down smaller and smaller and smaller until you find, in theory, the root cause. Mm-hmm. The way I like to do it is the opposite. So I take it the other way. Somebody comes to me with a problem or a, a goal statement. For example, one of my clients came and they go, uh, we want to reduce objection handling. Can you give us training in, in a, handling objections? I'm like, why? <laughs> and, you know, they look, they look at me like I'm an idiot and go, well, so we can sell more. You know, make more sales. Mm-hmm. I'm like, well, why do you want to make more sales? You know, they look at me like I'm an idiot again. And we'll say, like, duh, so we can make more money, more profit. And I said, well, why don't we make that our goal? So instead of coming and asking me how do we handle objections, why don't you come and ask me how can we make more money? Mm-hmm. And they're like, oh. So we ended up creating a solution where instead of handling objections, their salespeople were cold calling um, managers' offices and selling the managers an $1,800 management training course. And they kind of, hi, ring, ring, you've heard of Big Guru name. Um, and they start pitching the course cold over the phone. So I mucked about in their offices, and I found out they had a demo tape that after they tried to do this and call back a bunch of times, they'd offer a demo tape. Well, here's, here's our guy actually doing these management lessons. And then I mucked around, and I found out they had a um, sheet that listed, I think it was 20 different video cassettes in this course they were selling. And the, sh- the sheet actually listed all of the content. Hey, there's some bullets. So I took that. And I, I, so I took up this other stuff. And I go, let's do this. Call up and go, ring, ring. Hi. Looking into the future, do you want to grow your business by adding more staff or making the staff you have more productive? Oh. And I got a criteria thing again, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. And it was, and it was uh, Oh, well, and it really didn't matter what they answer. Yeah. And they go, great. Sitting here on my desk, it slapped the desk, I've got a package with a video and training stuff I'd like to send you on how to do just that. But before I send it, I just want to make sure you even wanted it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they're thinking I'm insane doing this. Who, who goes up and says, you know, you might not even want it. Um, what they found out was a large majority of the people said, well, send it to me. So then we packaged the videotape. And we packaged in a real sales letter with it. But then we did some other thing. We said, okay, great. I'm going to send this out um, three days. It'll be to you in three days. 
and um, I'm going to set an appointment to talk to you on the fourth day. So they'd set up a second appointment right then and there. They'd send this out. One of the other things I discovered is they had these insane testimonials on how great the product was and how people had used it to transform their business and, and motivate their people better. And so they sent it out, and then they that same day they'd send a fax end of the day. And they go, you know, today it would be an email. But it was like, hey, so-and-so, great talking to you. I shipped your product. Oh, I thought you might find this a success story of interest. Okay. The next day they would send a fax. So-and-so was thinking about you. Um, here's another success story I thought you'd find interesting. The third day, they get another fax. So-and-so, your package is coming today. Make sure your secretary comes in. We'll be talking tomorrow. Make sure you've watched the video. Oh, by the way, here's a, another instance of a guy that took this to uh, increase his productivity massively. Fourth day, they called. In the sales letter, I threw an offer in, which was, if you call me, um, I'll throw in another extra set of this management tapes on this other topic for free. Cool. All of a sudden, people start calling them back before the four days are up. And then when they called, anyway, the upshot of that was they increased their sales 300% in, in a two weeks of an $1,800 product because we went after a different objective, the I, um, instead of the initial problem by using that Y technique. So the next tap in T is target. Who are you targeting? Who's your audience? And we can go a lot into depth on this. It's, it's a critical leverage point. Um, I was just recently working with a business in the health industry, and they were targeting, like, everybody, but they're in a cash flow situation, so they need to close deals faster. In their industry, their sales cycle is two years. Hard to close sales fast on a two-year sales cycle. <laughs> I, when they close, they're, they're worth a million dollars a month. Wow. But until then, you had to survive until then to close one of those puppies. Okay. Um, but there were some deals that were closing in three and four months. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, it was just like an obvious. I, I came in and went, give me the profile of the people that are closing in three and four months. Mm-hmm. Tell me about that business. So they went to work, and the profile became, you know, uh, healthcare plans with under 30,000 members uh, was the prime thing. So instead of targeting people with hundreds of thousands of members, we just had them run through their database. They had their they had all the, the, the stats, pull up the companies that have about 30,000 people in their database, and instead of cold calling them with salespeople, we used FedExes. Went right after them with an executive briefing, which were major changes are coming in the healthcare industry. Um, we'll fly out and do an executive brief to your team that will show you, you know, hot, juicy fact one, hot, juicy fact two, hot, juicy fact three, and how you can reduce rejection rates and all this other stuff. Then they would follow up. And they followed up with the president going, hi, this is the president of such and such company. And we said, you think on an executive briefing, I want to fly my team out. Is that something you want or not? And all of a sudden, they're closing, uh, what was it, 20% of those companies are going, yeah. And they started closing deals in three and four months. Radically different approach, but it, but it came by choosing a separate target in their business. Okay. Um, in all of our businesses, who we choose to select as clients or targets is, is a massive strategic decision. And, and as I look over um, the businesses that you know succeeded and failed or those that had huge breakthroughs, that T in the ITAP formula was massive. The next one was A, which is approach. And this one kind of throws people. It's a blend of your, your marketing channels. How do we market out? And it's a blend of um, 
um, how we actually use those channels together. And I look at it not like separate channels all over the place, but I look at it like a football team. In a football team, at least U.S. football, um, some guys block, some guys end run and fake, and other guys run through the holes. But it's a team unity effort. So when I look at channels and media, I try and turn them into a football team, not individual efforts. Okay, here we do this, and over here we do this, and in this channel, you know, we've got Twitter, and we've got Facebook, and we've got our blog, and we've got PPC, and we've got this, and they're all working separately. Mm-hmm. It might be the same message going down all those channels, but they're not working together in a team unity. Mm-hmm. Team unity would be an example of, let me take your salespeople, let me have them call up somebody, offer them a package, now let's take your direct material and put it in that, now let's add in the testimonials, now let's come back and, you know, close. So you're, so you're using all the media, but in a unified manner. Okay. I, I don't have a better way to explain it that. Um, the illustration I gave earlier of the uh, 300% in, in uh, two weeks is an example of a unified approach mm-hmm. to using your, to, to altering your strategy on your approach. Um, another example, I work with a company and they work with kids with uh, learning disabilities. And learning disabilities, when you use that word, people tend to think more extreme cases of, of, of mental disabilities. Mm-hmm. But the truth was, these are kids that were more ADHD, they couldn't concentrate in class, they were really, really smart, but they're only getting C's. So the way it was sold was, you know, knock, knock, um, hi, we'd like to talk about this program we have with learning children with learning disabilities in your private school. And they go, we don't have any of those children. So not the most effective sales strategy. What I did was I changed it. They had a huge amount of information that an average teacher could use in an average classroom to work with struggling students or kids that were kind of in the struggle range. Mm -hmm. So instead we said, hey, so-and-so, I'm with this company. We work with these children. We've got so much information your teachers could use right now. And when's your next teacher's meeting? We'd love to come and present all these strategies that your teachers can use in the classroom and and make teaching more effective. And they're like, oh, well, come on in. Mm -hmm. And so then we get in and we do the chat in front of the teachers, and it was pure information. It was not sales. I mean, it just kind of struck the problem, but we were giving them strategies they could use. And then they go, uh, you know, what the end, what do all the teachers ask? How do we get this program? Yeah. And it was done. And the administrators over there are like, oh, well, maybe I should talk to you. So that was an example of changing an approach. That increased sales 50%. Mm-hmm. Instantly, when the approach changed. So that is kind of a, a different way to look at it, but that's approach. P is with your proposition, which would include your product, your offer. Um, it would include the positioning. Mm-hmm. And, and all of those elements include your promise when you go in. Um, in, in the mortgage industry, I had this client, and they sold to the mortgage industry. So they sold two loan officers, and they were selling their product based on we can increase your sales. Well, I had done re- some research a couple years earlier, and I found out that in that market, referrals was a hot button. And at the time, the Internet was, was blowing up, and I said, here's how to turn CPAs and financial planners into an Internet superhighway. That exploded. That was getting, they could mail that out to a um, cold list and get a 13% response rate. 
Then we modified it as, as times changed and moved to um, one of the fellows that used this program, and he was generating $500,000 a year in referral commissions. And it was how to become a $500,000 a year referral machine. And, and that ran for 10 years. That was worth millions of dollars, that one thing. But by changing the core proposition you're going to a market with, um, it radically alters. That's, an, that's the other key point on your strategy there. So it could be the, the promise. It can be the positioning of your product. It could be your product. You know what? Stop selling this product. Let's do another product. So, so those, are the, those are four major things. Um, the I, what's your identity? What are you trying to do? What's your purpose? What's your mission? The target, the T, who am I going after? Who's my client? Who's my, who's my prospect? Um, the A, what is the approach I'm going to take to get them? And don't think just in terms of channels, which you have to, but in terms of making them work in unity. And then P, what's my proposition I'm coming to them with? And the proposition is the product, the offer, the promise, the product's making, and the positioning of it. Excellent. Any one of those four could lead to a massive breakthrough. But if we make improvements in all four of those areas, it's going to be really exponential, isn't it? Yes. There's a caution, though, and here's what I'll throw you. You may only want to change one of those. Oh, okay. What I found out is almost every business ends up morphing around. It's kind of like um, kind of evolutionary cycles and how bats in one area develop bigger ears and only eat fruit. In another area, they got tiny little ears and they eat insects, and they specialize, right? Well, all the businesses tend to specialize around their food source, However they started and they start to get their leads or their approach and they're getting business, they tend to structure around that. Mm-hmm. It's hard enough to change one of those. Like if you're using one approach or one channel and you go from using uh, classified ads or you go from magazine ads that are, that are um, um, kind of branding oriented to using PPC, which is response measurable ordered, that's like throwing the whole in, you know, the, the company – can hardly handle that and survive. So, so, so if you change two things at once, it breaks apart. Okay. It's almost like the company. So yes, it would be exponential and, it, and often just changing one is exponential. Mm-hmm. But if you go changing two or three at the same time, the, the, it blows apart. Okay. It's like the company, the organism can't handle all that change at once mm-hmm. because it is fundamental and strategic. Yeah, you know, if you've been feeding off one kind of prospect or, or target market, and then you shift target markets, as soon as you shift your target market, already the approach you're taking and the promises you're making and the, and the product has to change a little bit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you really are changing them all at once. But, um, but if you try to massively change, I'm going to change who I'm going after, and I'm going to radically change our marketing channels, mm-hmm. you're going you're to break the ship. Okay. So... That's just a caution. So would you in that case just change one thing and then leave it as that? Or would you then, once you've changed something, the organism is still intact, would you then maybe go to something else or would you just leave it at that point? I, I would go to something else. Sure, okay. Well, yeah, once we know they're going to live, they yeah. can go to something else. But, but just like off changing who your target is or changing what your core objective is that you're actually going after, um, I'm going to go from wanting to be the biggest ad agency to being the most profitable is your core objective and the, under the eye, that will radically change everything. That's going to filter down to the whole organization. Um, so you've got to give those things time to, time to go in. And um, I, I, as tempting sometimes as an outside guy and we go in or, or your, your listeners go in 
or they're working in a company and I go through this talk and they're going, oh, my word, I can change this and change this and change this. And the companies just can't handle it. They're, they're going to fall back to what they're doing to survive or they're going to break apart. Okay, just before we move on to our next topic, one last question about strategy and copy. You mentioned to me in a previous conversation about something called the Ansoft Matrix. How does that apply with this subject? The, uh, Ansoft, let me go to the story of it and then I'll go to how it applies. Sure. Um, I didn't originally know it as the Ansoft Matrix. I knew it is some old deal maker sat down with a wink and goes, hey, kid, let me show you something that I use to select deals and predict which are going to win and fail uh-huh. and put myself in the highest position to win every single time. Okay. And so he sits down, he draws this little matrix, just a, you know, a square tic-tac-toe box on, on the uh, piece of paper. And in the bottom, what would be here? I'm looking at it. Bottom left, he goes existing product, existing customer. Writes that in there. And that would be what we call optimization. Selling more of your existing stuff to more people, making your web pages work better, making your lead system work better, um, changing headlines. If somebody's already running ads, changing ads, you're not doing new stuff. Um, you know, product manufacturing, going to a whiter mouse so the customer uses more of it by accident. Um, you know, all those, all those kinds of things. Selling more stuff to existing customers. Um, and I even say existing markets, which is just expanding your market a bit. Um, right up from that, so on the upper left, he writes, existing customers, new products. So now we've got these customers that we have a relationship with. What else can we sell them? Mm-hmm. And here you get into, if you don't have something to sell them, you get into affiliate marketing and all of, all of these other things. But affiliate marketing to your own people, not going out cold. Then he goes across the top of the matrix to the upper right quadrant, and he said, your existing products to a new market. And what we find as we're doing this is the probabilities of your succeeding are getting smaller and smaller. Okay. If, if you're doing marketing initiatives, if you're working within a company, I, I, I would encourage anybody that wants to do better at marketing, move up in their companies, eventually move on their own, is take a look at the existing company's marketing and find ways to start making small tweaks. That's extraordinarily high probability of success. If I tweak a headline, if I tweak an offer, if I tweak um, our approach to the existing customers, I've got an extraordinarily high chance of what I do working. Mm -hmm. If I come in and propose, okay, let's take and bring new products and services to our existing customers, I have a very high probability of succeeding. I can talk to the customers. I can ask them what they want. That clues me off on, you know, what their problems are, what the challenges are, things like that. I've got an existing relationship with them that I'm coming in with. So that's got a very high probability of success. The second, I move to the right side of that matrix on that upper quadrant box, which are my existing products that, I've, that are known to work, and I'm trying to reach new markets with them. I start to get a little away from success. Okay. It, it's going to be a lower chance that I actually succeed. Um, then we drop down to the bottom, it would be the bottom right quadrant, lower right quadrant, and that is new products to new markets. Yeah. If I'm coming into a market and I've never sold this product before, in fact, it's a newer product, and I've never sold to these people before and have no relationship with them, I'm in the extraordinarily high probability of failure quadrant. 
Conversely, I'm in the extraordinarily um, high probability column that if I do succeed, it's going to be an Apple computer breakthrough. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's those, it's those different quadrants. So you have to know your payoffs. For, for smaller companies, they shouldn't be jumping out to that fourth quadrant. Mm-hmm. If you're a major corporation with major money and you can take some losses and that's just, you know, that's part of business. Absolutely, they should be at least part of their investment needs to be going into that fourth quadrant. So there's there's two ways to use this tool, maybe three. The first is I mentioned the ICAP formula, and you're trying to come up with ideas and strategies. Those ideas that you come up with are going to fall into this box. Okay. This box helps you know what's going to succeed. Next, if you've got a lot of freelancers, uh, designers, copywriters, things like that listening, or people looking to jump into getting business, I don't know why, but everybody wants to jump into that, that fourth quadrant is what everybody wants to do instinctively. Mm-hmm. Oh, I found a market where no one's ever done it before, and it's a new product. Woo! And they think they've hit the other load. What they've done is hit the 95% chance of hitting the wall yeah. mode. And for some reason, untrained entrepreneurs, that's the pool they want to jump in, mm-hmm. the pool without water and a high dive. Yeah. So – Instead, what they should do is aim for, hey, am I doing marketing? Am I doing freelancing? Am I doing consulting around your existing stuff? I'm going to look like a stud. Am I helping you take your existing or, or take new stuff to your existing relationships? I'm going to look like a stud. I'm going to do well. As soon as we start jumping out into new markets, there's a, there's a good chance or higher chance I'm going to fail. So, so for example, for copywriters. Gary Benjavinga never used to look for um, new people that had never done anything before, and he never tried to do these breakthrough packages. He looked for people that had existing packages, mail packages, that were breaking even, Mm -hmm. but that they weren't doing all the things he knew that they needed to do. And he called it picking on wimps. That's how he started winning all the time. (laughs) Jay, Jay Abraham, the great marketing genius, he either does box one, which is he starts tweaking existing. They have salespeople. He starts existing what they're doing. They have ads. He starts tweaking the ad, the headline, the offer, um, the, the structure of it. He doesn't come in and go, let's do completely new things. Or he comes in and goes, wow, you've got a customer base of 300,000 people, and you're only selling one product, and you have incredible relationships with them. Let's do a joint venture and offer them something new. He does not go out into those other boxes. Okay. So he might teach how to do it, but when he does deals, he's doing deals in box one and two. Okay. So a- as a copywriter, I mean, I remember being hungry for business and somebody comes to you with something. Yeah. And almost always it's going to be something like in box four. <laughs> and okay. you like, oh, you write and work your tail off. And you just have to know there's a high probability this is going to fail. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, if a guy with 80,000 customers comes to you and goes, hey, I'm introducing this new product. Um, can you write something to my existing customers about it? Pounce on it. Yeah. Because you're going to look like a rock star. <laughs> yeah. So so I use the Ansoff matrix. You can, you can use it as kind of a core, okay, I'm looking at a business. Here are four major things they can do to grow. Let me look in each of those boxes for things to help them grow. Or I look at my own business through that lens. 
what are things that my existing customers, existing processes, existing marketing, existing advertising, existing lead generation systems, what is stuff I can do to optimize and tweak that? I mean, and that's where a large part of the industry is. Brilliant. The next is, wow, I've got relationships now. How can I sell them more stuff, more of my product, more of other people's products, um, things like that? So you can use it to screen all the ideas. Like anybody listening to this or any of your other interviews, you know, you can end up with hundreds of ideas that go through all your interviews. Mm -hmm. This matrix serves as your criteria screen that we talked about earlier. So they can throw all that ideas. Where does this fit within the matrix? Brilliant. And as I learned later, it was called the Amps. It actually wasn't this old dealmaker's idea. Um, it was actually the uh, MBA professor, um, Ansoff, who created it. Um, and it's called the Ansoff Growth Matrix. My next question for you, Robert. I know that you're writing a book at the moment. And in the book, you talk about something called the growth formula. How did you discover that? Oh, this, this is fascinating. I, 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 so I, I've done the copywriting thing. Um, I learned that, I, I mean, I love and I'm passionate about copy, but strategy is just flat out more important, no matter what anybody selling anything says, and that, that strategy can just have these huge transformations. So I put, write my book, Strategy Matters, based on these things, and you'll discover things like the Ansoff Matrix in there, uh, and as, as well as the formula, as well as the process to, to do strategy. So um, I wrote that book, very happy with it. That book started opening more doors for me, and I started looking around like, hey, what's next? And I go, you know what, I think I want to do something on growth, not just strategy, but kind of a more tactical thing called growth. And so I started focusing on growth, and I started thinking about all my growth stories and everything I knew about growth. And so I think I'm pretty smart, and I've got this, I ended up again with a big bucket of ideas on how to grow a company. So then I have something like, you know, forehead slap, duh. It's like, you know what, instead of just looking at me and what I've done, why don't I get out there and talk to other fast growth CEOs and fast growth companies and find out what they've done and just take myself out of it for a bit here. So I, I started looking up and around our business pages here. We have, you know, the fastest hundred growing fastest 100. Uh, wow. The fastest growing 100 businesses, top 100 here in Orange County, California, and, and, and all the other cities in the, in the U.S. Um, there's also the 500 list and things. So I started targeting these CEOs to interview them and find out what they did. So I start off, and yeah, it's fun. You're, you're talking to guys that have grown businesses to nothing to 10 or $20 million, and they're telling me everything that they've done and going on a bit it, about it. And I'm having fun for a while, but then all of a sudden I'm noticing I'm ending up with that big bucket of ideas again. Yeah. It's like, well, yeah, they got hit, and they got knocked down, and they got up again. So we know we kind of have to pers- persevere. They work hard. They're smart. They seek, they do this. Some use more modern text marketing. Some use internet. Some use this. So all of a sudden I'm ending up with this big thing of tactical stuff that they've done. But no, and I'm kind of frustrated. So I'm going, well, this is nothing to write about that no one else has ever written about. So I start thinking about it and I have a friend. He's a uh, martial arts master. In, in the true sense, he spent 10 years in China, um, came over here. He's a Pan-American Jiu-Jitsu champion um, on top of the Chinese martial arts. Um, he's written a couple books. One of them was Effortless Combat. What he did is he was looking at throwing, and he's kind of looking at how people get thrown, and he's kind of going through what I'm doing. Well, you've got the Japanese system of throws in Jiu-Jitsu where you name the throw after the joint you use. So... 
If I grab your wrist and use that to execute a throw, it's a wrist throw. If I use your elbow or your shoulder, it's a shoulder throw. Then there's the Japanese system of, of uh, judo. They name their throws after the body part that you use to do the throw. So it doesn't matter what you grab on the opponent. If you step in with your hip, it's a hip throw. If you loop them over your shoulder and do it, it's a shoulder throw. And so that's how they named it. So he's trying to look at all these techniques in addition to all of the Chinese systems. And they had different ways of categorizing their throws by forces and things like that. Mm-hmm. And he goes, well, let me turn this around. And if I'm being thrown, what's happening to my body? And he goes, oh, there's only three things. There's a circle, there's an arch, and there's a um, spiral. And he, for the first time in hundreds of years, came up with a different way to categorize throws. And which is pretty amazing, given all the time people have spent on this. Um, so inspired by him, I looked at all these businesses and I go, instead of my trying to look at all the tactics they use, let me start at the end result of a breakthrough. You know, the growth shot up 300%. What happened right before that? So I started backwards and worked forwards. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I started going, it's like, it was pretty darn fast. The first thing that has to happen, there's a breakthrough result. What happened right before that was some kind of action. They took action. Okay, cool. We've all heard it before, but, but that is absolutely the step that happens right before results. What happens before somebody takes action? No one, even like in an instinctive situation, takes action without first having a concept of what they're going to do. They have to have an idea. That idea might be a single idea. It might be a strategy. It might be a plan. It, it, it might be a product or something. But it's an idea is formed. Then they take action. Then they get results. Great. So now we're to the question, what comes right before an idea? Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, crud. Well, people have been asking that for centuries, right? <laughs> yeah. How, where do ideas come from? So I'm kind of stumped a little bit, and then I'm interviewing this guy, and uh, here in the U.S., I think Europe was way ahead of us on this. He was the first guy in the U.S. to start reselling used cell phones on a major, major uh, way. Mm-hmm. And he and his partner started off, and they'd do school fundraisers, and the, all the kids would bring their phones in. They'd buy them off them. Then they'd go to the garage over the weekends, and they'd sit – and when you do it that way, they'd end up with three or 400 different phone designs from different manufacturers, and they have to test and make sure all these phones are working. So, I, I mean, it's massively labor-intensive. And it's, it's incredibly intensive to go out and create these school fundraisers and get them going. And they can't quit their full-time job, so they're doing this part-time. So that's where they're at, and they're doing this. One day... They grab another box of cell phones and open it. Instead of there being 50 different phones in there, there was one type of phone. And that one type of phone was from one corporation. And the light went off. And they went, oh, my word. We're going to approach corporations that are dumping all their corporate phones. Forget the fundraisers. We can go to corporations and go, hey, you want to save the environment? Send us your used phones. And they can send us thousands of phones. Mm-hmm. Our testing process, we just saved our time. We only have to use one piece of testing equipment to blow through all these phones to see if they're working or not. Right? Yeah. Bang! They could scale the business. And they were, I think they were outgrowing the industry by 130% on the Inc. 500 at the time. They were Inc. 500 tiers in a row, fastest growing. So they're just smoking off that single ship. 
And when they had that insight and he's telling me that story, a couple days later I'm thinking about it, and I forehead slap and go, I know what happens before people have breakthrough ideas. And it's insight into a leverage point. And I started going back over all these breakthroughs I've been involved in. I started, you know, blowing through the business press, studying breakthroughs and stuff, and there it was every single time if somebody found a leverage point. Mm-hmm. Then they created the idea and then they went. To show you how powerful this is, um, take the Folgers coffee here in the, in the U.S. Um, they've got an ad or a, a campaign that ran for years and it allowed them to dominate the market. And it was the best part of waking up is Folgers in your cup. Mm-hmm. One of the people on the creative team realized that out of all the research they're doing, people had set the timers on their coffee makers so when they woke up, it was already brewing coffee. Mm-hmm. And they took that insight, that leverage point, and it became one of the greatest ad campaigns in coffee history. Mm-hmm. Um, just like these guys took the cell phone and went. I had a guy who was a bounce house guy, um, the little kitty bounce houses that you rent for birthday parties and stuff. He, and he's a growth-driven guy. He wants, he's, he's got a lot of drive. So he starts adding more bounce houses, and then he adds more people to deliver the bounce houses. Then he has to buy cars or or uh, trucks with trailers on them to, to run these things around. And the more he grows, the less money he's making, the harder he's working. And in Southern California traffic, on any given weekend, a couple of those guys are going to be late or miss a party because of traffic and traffic accidents. And so you end up with moms just irate, screaming that they've ruined his, their, his, you know, their child's life because um, they missed this bounce house at a party. So he's frazzled, his people is frazzled, his equipment's wearing out, he's having to replace it. Um, he's one frustrated puppy. All of a sudden he gets a call from a church group. And they go, hey, you know, we need uh, seven of those bounce houses. He's like, uh-huh. So he does it, and then he realizes, wow, that was easy. Instead of having seven different guys go to seven different parties and stay out late at night bringing all these things back, I threw seven of these on a truck and drove them to one event and made seven times the money. That was his leverage point, was it was a new market that was much more ripe. And so he just changed everything on his marketing, and he went after church and synagogues and um, kind of social. I, out here is the Rotary Club and the Lions Club and, and um, associations like that. And he went from being the bounce house guy to be in the third fastest growing party rental company in the uh, Southern California area, all off of that one insight, that one leverage point. And I found out that those leverage points in almost every real successful business growth story were there, whether they just stumbled onto it or whether they found it. So then I started looking at these things. I go, with a lot of the companies that found these, these leverage points, that leverage point was available to them a year, two years, three years earlier. If they just seen it, why aren't they seeing the leverage points? So I started looking into it some more, and we'll call it desire, or we'll call it pain. In about 50% of the cases, they face an existential threat to their business. Okay. They're, they're going to fail. In one case, one of my clients, now they're one of the first companies to start the uh, voice marketing which are they leave the automated, I don't even know if it's legal in the UK or Europe, but um, they leave the automated messages on your answering machines. Mm-hmm. He's one of the first companies into that. FCC got into it because people complained about it, started regulating it, 
and they came out with a rule that stipulated companies can't even call their own customers past 18 months using the technology, and you can no longer use it except in political stuff. You can no longer use it. Okay. So all those companies that were thriving off using this thing for lead generation can't do it anymore. Mm-hmm. He's going to lose all his clients. He has a crisis. We take a look at his business, and we discover one industry, the retail industry, they've got a lot. I mean, each retailer had hundreds of thousands of clients. Because they're running sales and promos all the time, they had a reason to use the surface service almost weekly. And an ad created for one or a strategy created for one could be leveraged across the entire industry. They could all use pretty much the same follow-up message. So it was highly leverageable. And it was insanely effective. When these people did this, their sales jumped by 10% if they alerted people by phone the night before a big weekend sale. So he said, okay, that's it. We're dropping all these other industries. We are going after retail. Everybody on his team is going, you're insane. We have to go to everybody. He's going, you know what? No, this is the future. Let's go after that. Bottom line, he was struggling around about $1.5 million a year. Over the next two years, they went up to $7 million, then they went to $10 million the next years. Um, all off an insight, but they didn't get that insight into the better market, that leverage point, until he was in pain. Okay. So let's flip the formula around, and here's kind of what you get. You either get what I call a growth-driven leader, mm-hmm. say Steve Jobs. These guys are just driven, or Bill Gates. I mean, these guys are just driven to grow. So they're constantly looking for the insights. Mm-hmm. Or they get in trouble. They get fired. Um, you know, They lose their job or what they're doing. The market gets threatened. A competitor moves in, and it threatens to wipe them out. They have to go looking for a better way, or they're not going to live. Those are the companies, the driven because they're driven, or the driven because they're in pain, that discover leverage points. Okay. Once you discover a leverage point, the ideas are easy. If I tell you, hey, wow, one type of your customer can generate about 100 times more revenue than the others, what big idea comes out of that? To target them better? Exactly. It's simple, right? Mm-hmm. So, so all of these ideation techniques, they work, but what I'm looking at is like this real consistent pattern. So, yes, there are other ways to generate ideas. Mm-hmm. Finding leverage points is a really, really, really good day, way to generate million-dollar ideas. Okay. First look for the leverage point, and then you get the idea, then you have to take action on it and so forth. And then, I, as we talked about before, taking action, there's smart ways to take action, and there's stupid ways to take action. And, and what most online people understand is this thing called testing. And before you go taking a flying leap, you can A-B split test. And I joke, I call it the entrepreneurial crash, crash test dummy. Um, I've got a client. He's also a friend. But that guy's approach to testing new businesses, which is full-on, full-bore, 100% commission, uh, uh, commitment, he'd just run in there and attack it, whether it was a good idea or a bad idea, because he'd never tested it. And so what he'd end up doing is, like, he'd sit him in a room, and he'd put a helmet on, and he'd run at this wall, bang, run at another wall, bang, another business idea. That one doesn't work. He's up, running, bang. And it was just painful to watch until he finally finds, like, a window he ends up crashing through, and there's his next million-dollar business. Mm-hmm. And he repeated this pattern over his life. Uh, but there's, it was effective. At least he took action. But there's smarter ways to take action. 
through testing, through prototyping, and things like that. Um, and then you get the results. So anyway, that, that's roughly the, the growth formula. Um, first, do a desire check. Um, I call it start a fire. Okay. Next, find a star. You gotta take, you gotta take those problems and frustrations, or you gotta take that desire, and you gotta make a clear objective out of it. What am I trying to do? Um, and that could be a grand objection. I'm trying to create a business that serves the people like Henry Ford, you know, and uh, I'm gonna create a business that, that creates an automobile that the average person on an average man wage can afford. That was his big drive. That's a big dream. If you're inside of a company, your objective might just want to be, I want to increase sales 20% in the next 60 days. But whatever that star is, you have to have a star. So take the desire, the pain, or the drive, turn it into a specific objective, not all objectives, just one clear objective, one clear star you're going to go after, and then you start searching for leverage, what I call gravel lever. You start going through your business. That ITAP formula we mentioned earlier is a great way to start trying to find leverage in the business. Okay. Who am I targeting? What, what are the approaches we're taking to them? What about that? We mentioned the ANSOF matrix earlier. Wow, okay, here's my objective. I want to increase sales in the next 20 days. Can I do it by optimizing what we're doing? Can I do it by bringing something new to our existing customers? Can Are there some easy markets that we can go into through finding joint ventures ourselves and going into new markets that way that are a high probability? Um, other ways are looking around, and, and this is, this came out like extraordinarily common, was people look around at other industries and what are they doing, and then they import, import successful ideas into their own. Mm-hmm. That was another major source of leverage points. Another major source, we all know it, we all talk about it, and I go into business after business that's never done it, and it's the 80-20 principle. Mm-hmm. You know, 20% of our customers produce 80% of our revenues. 20% of our salespeople produce 80% of the sales. 20% of our marketing produces 80% of the leads. And going through with a fine-tooth comb, 80-20, it's universal. Anybody can do it in their business. Mm-hmm. So those are just a few examples of ways to find the leverage points. Um, one I find, like if I'm in front of an audience talking, and I'll have, you know, I'll tell the audience, okay, we've been talking about growth. Um, turn to your neighbor and tell them all the things that you should be doing to grow your business in the next one minute. Go ahead, shoot on each other, go. And they start, oh, I should do this, I should do this, I should do that, do this, do, this, do the other. Mm-hmm. And then I, I bring it back, okay, out of all of those ideas that you just suggested doing, how many came up with the idea of stopping something? I'm going to stop serving markets. I'm going to kill off a product. I'm going to eliminate this division of the company. Mm-hmm. No one comes up with anything. Because everybody looks at growth like doing more and more. Yeah. But in a lot of the stories I just told you, they didn't do more and more. Mm-hmm. They narrowed down into one type of marketing, to one approach, to one type of customer. Yeah. And they narrowed it back down. And so anybody listening to this or they go through all the interviews, you end up with all these things you should be doing. And the truth is you should probably stop doing some stuff. Um, grab Forbes, flip through it, look at the turnaround stories. How many of those turnarounds came from them doing more and more stuff versus how many of those turnarounds came with a new guy coming in going, okay, we are stopping that. Mm-hmm. We are not going after this market, and this product sucks. <laughs> yeah. We are not selling that thing anymore. We are going to do this. And so it's, it's, it's ironic, but some of the leverage points are letting go, letting go of all this stuff. 
Mm-hmm. One I like to emphasize, and it's not a leverage point, but it's a way to find leverage points, is what I call time for reflection. Okay. In my ongoing informal survey with entrepreneurs, and you know, by show of hand, that kind of survey, mm-hmm. um, when do you think about your business? And there's two answers to that, sometimes three, in the shower yeah. or in my car on the way to work, and, and occasionally, you know, sitting on the loo. <laughs> um, that's when. So they are so busy all day long, they're not te- taking time out for reflection, mm-hmm. just to think about the business and get away. Um, one of my clients is real successful. He had an inner office built inside of his office, so it was like between the walls. You couldn't even see it. And he built a little library in there and a table and a study. And he would just go in there for a half hour once a week on Fridays. Mm-hmm. And Friday afternoon, he'd lean back in his recliner, and he'd just ponder and reflect on his business. And when you do that, a lot of business people, they already know their answers. Mm-hmm. They know where the leverage is. They know what's working, what's not. But, they're, you know, it, it, we're supposed to be busier and busier and busier and do more and more stuff. And I have to do Twitter. I have to do Facebook. I have to do PPC. I have to do um, joint ventures. I have to do this. I have to do that. We get, like, so busy, we're not taking a step back and just reflecting on the business and going, where do I want to go? Mm-hmm. You know, um, where do I want to take the business? What customers do I like working with the best? Which aren't I? Okay, here's a problem that keeps coming up. Why, what's, why does that keep coming up? What's the, what's the pattern? And you got to take time out to reflect on the business. Um, this is another major key there on, on, on the leverage points. As far as generating ideas, like I said, that used to be my whole focus. I've got a, I've got a library. It's got 2,000 books. Uh, probably um, three-fourths of them are sales and marketing. The other fourth of them are on ideation techniques. How do you create ideas? How do you create ideas? Because I was all, like, all about the idea. Hey, I'm an idea man. Um, and what I learned was I need to be all about the leverage. The ideas come from the leverage pretty easily okay. once I found the leverage. So that's a little shift in my behavior in the last two years. Um, so then taking action, I have to take action. One of the big things standing in the way of action is fear. Um, it's like get over it, do something small, do something. But I, I like to say once you take an action, there's three R's, R3, if you want to write a code. Uh, take a look at it, and you ask, did it work? So do I refine it? Okay, it worked so-so. It didn't work all the way. Do I want to refine this and make it work? Mm-hmm. Did it bomb? What, um, what we do instinctively, because we're not quitters, is we try and call reinforced failure. Okay, this idea didn't work, so I have to try harder. Mm-hmm. Okay, that didn't work. Now I have to even try harder. Wow, that still didn't work. I need to bring in my best team members and work on this. <laughs> and we start what um, Drucker called feeding failure. We take our best people, our best talents, our best time, our, our, our most emotionally, you know, our emotional energy, and we throw it into what's not working. Mm-hmm. Instead, we should, like, the second R is reject it. So can I refine it, make it work better? Can I reject it? On the other hand, sometimes we do stuff that works really well, like we send out a letter, you know, without a return address or branding on it, and it creates $395,000 with the sales and a week. Hmm, maybe I should roll that out, and that's the third R, rolling out. So R3, so under how do I how do I take action? Well, find something to take action on, and then R3 it. Refine it, reject it, or roll it out. Brilliant. And then last step, you know, enjoy the results. Have the breakthrough. Yeah. 
Awesome. Robert, I have to say that you've really got me thinking about all sorts of things now, leverage points in my own business. I hope everyone listening to this is having that same thought process as well. It's great that you've clarified that and just shed some light on an area that we would all like to benefit from, but sometimes don't know where to start and knowing that the leverage points are where to begin. Well, I guess we begin, first of all, with the drive and wanting to get that breakthrough in the first place. But then finding that leverage point, I think, is probably the step where a lot of people are missing. So it's fantastic. I just know intuitively, and I do it too. Yeah. Um, you know, you feel the pain. Yeah. Um, maybe you form or don't form a fuzzy objective or a star, mm-hmm. and instantly you start creating ideas. Yeah. And it and it's like, okay, we'll get those out, then take a step back and look for leverage. And that and that's really the the grab a lever is like if I'm leaving something with your with your listeners, mm-hmm. it's, it's it's grab that lever because that that baby's where it's going to happen. That's what's going to grow your business. Thank you for explaining where to actually look for those levers as well. This has been absolutely excellent and really solid gold information, Robert. Where can we get more of this sort of stuff from you? Uh, it's pretty simple, robertstover.com. Okay. So, yeah, but I mentioned the copy course earlier, but um, pretty much everything else I'm talking about is happening out at robertstover.com. Um, if you go out, there's a brief video that explains the, the formula and how I discovered it and some more examples that they can use. Now, if they want to opt in, they can get this kind of stuff on growth levers coming to them on a consistent basis. And there's tons of free stuff out if they want to go kick around the site as well. Great. That's the end of today's show. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed the show. Please remember to go check out robertstover.com. There's some fantastic information over there. You've heard today what kind of amazing info Robert has for you and how he has the ability to help you grow your business. Robert, I'd just like to thank you once again for being on the show today. Thank you much, Joey. The Online Marketing Show. Every day with Joseph Bushnell. Helping you to grow your online business by driving more traffic, improving conversion rates, increasing customer value, and getting things done fast. Listen, take action, make money.